your mom looks like a classroom. What kind Ooh. of classroom? My mom is covered. Is a map of torture. What is that line from? My body is a. Uh, my body is a roadmap of pain. Roadmap of pain. Yeah. The frighteners, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Bonehead. We didn't start recording yet. Yes, we have. We did. See that upper left-hand corner next oh. to that projector behind James, where it says recording. No, I'm having my hot cocoa here with my Darth Vader Star Wars cup. Mm. And I'm wearing my uh, vintage Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem hat. It's seen better days, but I feel our YouTube Again, subscribers Joe, Joe, are low. Yeah, and Joe's covering the graying and the balding. It's mainly graying, but yeah, a little balding probably. And James is covering his cauliflower ear. <laughs> James is covering those widow's peaks. <laughs> How many widows died to break that peak? James, seriously, when are you going to give up your MMA career? It's not going anywhere. What's MMA? Mixed martial arts. That's yeah. how I thought it started for. Stand what it, for. What? Stood for. <laughs> good job, Joe. You don't think goodly. <laughs> so, welcome to Bonehead. I guess we went ahead and got started. There you go. Yeah. What's our topic today, Chad? So, let's give a little background. Okay. So, it has been roughly six to eight episodes since Joe has barely contributed, and he was feeling a little needy and that he wanted to talk more. So we let him pick Did this you week's say barely contributed. <laughs> yes, Marvel episode. Did you contribute anything to the cartoons? Oh well, you did South Park. Barely contributed. James, back me up on this, bro. He's been phoning it in for Thank years. <laughs> so he wanted to do John Hughes. He wanted to do your mom, and what? Guess what? <laughs> <laughs> I thought you almost said you wanted to do my mom in water. <laughs> you know the shape of water loosely based on that you know which part they got right oddly enough seriously you cough no no no. In the bathtub. Oh, no 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 you know which part they got right <laughs> watch <laughs> if you're if you're if you're listening that didn't make sense but no. if you see the shape of water I did the thing where she shows how his penis comes out <laughs> so just letting you know that's the accurate part. Del Toro was very specific on what happened when it came to me doing your mom. Water. No, but seriously, it's been a while since we actually discussed anything movie related. And we thought a good, a good return to movies would be to talk about one of the most prolific uh, writers slash directors, even though he, producers. he only really, he only directed eight films, eight movies, eight movies, eight movies. The four of them are good. Yes. <laughs> we'll go through that. Yeah. But four of them are probably good. Right. And two hold up. Right. Three. We'll get to that. In we'll a get minute. to that because I'm kind of curious what those opinions are. Yeah. Um, so we're talking about did I say the name? Yeah, John, John Hughes. Hughes. <laughs> John Williams, folks. We're going to talk about the career of music of John Williams. John Houston? John Houston. We're talking about Sierra Madre. The whole podcast from this point on, every episode is the treasure of Sierra Madre. We're all going to get up at the end of it and do the Walter Houston dance when he finds the treasure. Every episode is a treasure. <laughs> That's not true. James, are you going to, speaking of contributing, do you have any hot cocoa? No, I've got Diet Coke. Yeah, that's good. Anyway, so, so go ahead. Um, before I, I need to, to give um, uh, my resource. So when I did research, 
the majority of my research was pulled from an interview he did in 1991 for New York Times. Because he didn't do a lot of interviews after 1994. No, 1994. He, um, uh, he did a J.D. Um Pretty much he went into relative obscurity uh, right around that time and moved to a farm in northern Illinois. There's actually a documentary mm-hmm. done by four people. What I, don't, I can't remember the name of the title. Don't You Forget About Me. Don't You Forget mm-hmm. About Me. Thank you. I can't believe where they got the title. Yeah, I don't know. Released in 2009. Nine. Just keep going. I haven't got to watch it. I couldn't find it. I, could, I couldn't find it either. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, but in 2009 is when we lost. No, no, no. no hold on. I thought he died in 2009. He died in 2009. That's absolutely correct. Thank you. August the sixth. <laughs> I thought it was 99. Like no. an idiot. No, he, he was 59 years old. Yeah, and uh, honestly, uh, you know, might as well get to that right off the bat. The man chain smoked Carlton cigarettes on. Uh, continuously. I didn't know that. Yeah, he chain smoked Carlton cigarettes. It was even mentioned in this interview that he just constantly, one after another, was smoked Carlton cigarettes. Even up until he died? You're right. And also, too, he uh, continually, and he never stopped drinking Coca-Cola. Like, he actually had a, while they were, this was in the interview, he would have a go a, a gopher, constant, not an animal. <laughs> I'm all right. <laughs> Don't you forget. Don't you worry about me. You don't know your Kenny Loggins. I, I don't. <laughs> Ooh, this episode's about Kenny Loggins. Woohoo! We could do a whole episode of Kenny Loggins. We're not going to do a whole episode. But <laughs> listen, dude, we're not even in episode hundred. But <laughs> no, yes. we could do a whole episode on Kenny Loggins. Yeah, we probably will. I could do a whole episode on the Gopher Dance. You want to see it? Yeah. But no, he wouldn't. He uh, he conti- He would not. Ever there you go. He for would people ne- listening, there's a Gopher Dance. He would never have an empty glass of Coke. Even while he, even before he finished the cup, there would be somebody pouring more into it. So he was very highly caffeinated as well. I don't see how he's not diabetic and died of lung cancer because what he died of was a heart attack. attack. He's walking the streets of New York and fell dead with a heart attack. Yeah, but both of those probably contributed to that factor. Well, he's only 59, though. Yeah. I know this episode really isn't about his death, and we usually don't talk about those types of things, but you still think that he had to have some sort of heart condition. Right. I'm, it made, which is an, also a movie with Bob Hopkins, Bob Hoskins, <laughs> and Denzel Washington. <laughs> yeah, go out and check it out. So should we? Uh, so let's. Denzel's the heart. And James, if you have something to contribute, yeah, you can speak anytime, dude, or you can just sit there silence. Oh my God, James! James, he's even miming. Go. He's even miming words. He's not actually saying anything. He's miming words, ladies and gentlemen of the the listener. I'll, I'll throw something out when there's something interesting to respond to. Oh, oh right. so do you want to talk a little bit about his history? Because I want to talk. I want to talk about National Lampoon. If you want okay. to talk about that, let's he was talk, born in Michigan, right? Yeah, let's uh, let's talk about uh, John Wilden Hughes Jr. was born on February eighteenth, nineteen fifty, in Lane Sing, Michigan. His family moved when he was thirteen to the Chicago area, which was a staple for most of his. Uh, Almost all of his movies. all of his movies took place in the Chicago area in an imaginary neighborhood. In, yeah. fa- in fact. Um, he he exclusively shot in one neighborhood, so much so that that neighborhood became known as the John Hughes backlot. Absolutely, his his he was so much a fan of Chicago yeah. that his production company logo was the city was the Chicago city. Uh, it's the stars. Yeah. The, with the, uh, what's it called? Flag. Flag. <laughs> Couldn't think of the word flag. And uh, just a side note about the fact how much he loved Chicago. He hated L.A. This is a direct quote from John Hughes. L.A. is a real bad place to get perspective on the country. I never saw anything but the 405 freeway going to and from work, and I realized when I sat down to work, I didn't have anything to write about. So a lot. Of, so that tells you about how much of his inspiration came from 
the wonderful city of Chicago, which and is also, middle class and middle class, which is also another personal favorite of mine. I love Chicago. Um, he is that your sweet home? It might as it could be. I love Chicago. I like Chicago too. Actually, I've never been to New York City, but I love Chicago. I love. I've always had a good time in Chicago. I always. Uh, I've been once. I'm going again sometime. Hopefully, sometime in the near future. Oh, you are. You're hopefully. taking. Are you taking James and I? Nope. Do you want to go? I mean, it'd be nice to go. It'd be nice to be invited. Okay. I'll think about it. <laughs> James, can we leave James? Yeah, well, he adds so. You talk about me adding to a show. Somebody's angry. Is it James? Because he won't speak. Oh, no. I mean, it's great. I'm, I'm enjoying how much Chad and you like Chicago. He's doing He's Oh, yeah. You just keep doing the Christopher Walken's shoulder shrug. <laughs> you, got, you, need, you got a little tension there in your shoulders. Back to work. A little tension. A little bit. A little bit. Something can you beat the co-eds off, can you, sir? Oh, Mr. Tom. Oh, I'm sorry. Oh, Dr. Thomas, I need an A. That's, why, that's how they sound in Mississippi, right? Dr. Thomas, I need Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm teaching a bunch of, uh, of uh, Ediths. Girls so anyway, were girls, and he—he uh, he was, I believe, he was the only son out of three daughters. Uh, later on, <laughs> he went. Um, <laughs> That's bad. This is what happens when I don't go on. Had three daughters, and there was their son. <laughs> only son out of three daughters. That boy out of them three daughters. <laughs> well, oh Jim, Lord, shouldn't sit on dirty toilet seats. So, do you know he went to the University of Arizona? I did. Um, where, which was a school mostly known for what at the time? I would imagine media. Mining. Why did he go there? Uh, he, he just, uh, basically he said, I went, to, I went to school to study art at a university mostly known for mining. It, he never gave an explanation as to why he chose that school, but he chose to go to University of Arizona to study art where he was a painter. Um, he dropped out, yeah. moved back to Chicago, uh, he took a job at a warehouse, mm -hmm. and which is right, which is the plot right out of she's having a baby. Right, you've got to get your master's, and that was Chad, it, Remember, yeah, and that was one thing. He he, a lot of his movies are based on his real life. His real yeah, life, yeah. Just like Vacation is based on a short story that he wrote, based on his travels. As right, a kid. his travels as a kid driving across country to Disneyland in a land in a in a car packed with kids. Right. Um, on Friday, uh, no, sorry, I skipped. Hold on. He um, he he took a job at a warehouse and placed all of his artwork on the sidewalk as soon as he moved back to Chicago. So I imagine that somewhere somebody has a, 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 an a John art, Hughes collection, John Hughes painting collection, and don't doesn't even know it. I wonder what's worth. If it's John Hughes, I'm sure it's worth something. It's worth something. I didn't know about the art stuff. Yeah. Um, did you know about the what he did on the side while working on the warehouse? No. Uh. -uh. He started. I don't have anything. A National Lampoon on. Okay. He start. Uh, this is how he got his start. Mm -hmm. While working in a warehouse, he started sending comedians unsolicited jokes. Usually, I'm glad everybody could start going ahead and moving a fucking pot collection above <laughs> while we're doing the show. Yeah. Sorry. Here, here's how much of a pro prolific writer he was even then. He wrote a hundred jokes a day. On Fridays, he edited a week's worth and mailed off the best ten percent. <laughs> Um, Sorry, if you're not watching the show and you're listening, I'm looking up at the roof, the roof, the roof that has pots and pans falling. And on. Uh, th this was his, this was his method. This was another direct quote from John Hughes. I started out with Rodney Dangerfield, then moved down to Norm Crosby. <laughs> I don't even know who that is. <laughs> um, 
He got 70-50 for some of his jokes and up to 50 when he from Dangerfield, uh, who once opened uh, a monologue on The Tonight Show with one of Hughes' jokes. Which joke? It bombed miserably. It was something about uh, a machete. Okay. I, I, I might have that wrong, folks. I didn't write that down. Uh, the joke writing convinced Hughes he could go. He could do work in advertising. He took samples of his jokes and talked himself into a job at DDB Needham Worldwide. Which is, once again, a plot point right out of She's Having a, a Baby. baby. Uh, he worked in advertising for seven years for both Needham and Leo Burnett. He worked on Johnson Floral Wax and, most notably, Edge Shaving Cream. Um, back then, Edge Shaving Cream had an, had an ad where you could test the closeness of the shave with a credit card. Yeah. That was all John Hughes. Uh, he went to focus groups once a month to find out what people said they wanted in a product. And that experience, he says, uh, is where his insights into moving marketing, movie marketing came from. From advertising, he learned such notions as positioning a product and seeking to identify its inherent drama. Uh, to this day, he takes part to, oh, I'm sorry, as of 91, uh, he took part in almost all the advertising and marketing aspects of his films, often writing the ad lines himself. That's awesome. Uh, it was on regular trips to New York for Philip Morris accounts that Hughes began hanging around the office of the National Lampoon magazine. Yep. So do you want to, do you want me, do you want me to go into that? Well, you can go into it a little bit really quick while you're doing that. I want to turn something off. Just keep talking. I'm right back. Okay. I'm right back. I'm right so back. I'm right back. <laughs> James, do you have anything about his time on National Lampoon? No, I mean, other than obviously he's affiliated with it. So yeah. uh, He submitted some of his samples and began to get published um, while he spent time in National Lampoon. Uh, for a short time, he worked full-time for the Lampoon. But again, thanks to Hollywood's interest in Lampoon writers, um, after Animal House, he actually immediately got signed into a film development deal with Paramount Pictures. And it was really easy because Animal House wasn't expected to do anything. It right. was just a little movie Universal put money into. They weren't, they couldn't have cared less about it. They basically sent him off to Oregon to make the movie, John Landis. Right. And it ended up being a huge hit. In fact, Universal didn't really, I've heard, didn't want to release it upon viewing it. Right? Right. And... It was a huge hit. Uh, Ryan Ryman talks about how everybody got a development deal out of that except him because he was the one who produced it. Right. Did not, and am I right, John Hughes went on, what was, it was called Delta House. He worked on the show. Yeah, he worked on the show Delta House. That's that correct. was made from the movie. Sorry. No, no. Going. Um, this is how prolific a writer he was during his time. He is quoted as saying, if I'm on a roll, I finish a script at 3 a.m., I'll start another one at 3.02. Yep. He, I can, we can go through, and I have all the dates here, and I don't know that we're going to do it, but if you go through, like, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, Planes, Trains, and Audible Bills, he would keep these, like, leather-bound journals right. of notes of how or where he was when he was writing. Right. Most of these screenplays, the first drafts were done within two to three days. Yep. I'd say The Breakfast Club was a two-day. Two-day. Now, he wrote that technically before he wrote Pretty in Pink. Did you know that? No, he uh, – Not Pretty in Pink, but 16, the 16 Candles. Candles. No, yeah, I know that. Uh, oh, let, okay, sorry. Let me, uh, let me find it here real quick. Um, so, Dead uh, air! Dead no, air! No. Um, this led to um, 
so, but what he did before Breakfast Club and Sixteen Candles is he wrote Mr. Mom. Yep, which was a big hit. Which was taken out of taken out of his control by 20th Century Fox. Hughes was very bitter about this. I didn't know that. Yeah, he had a he his his he held on to this bitterness for years. Even during this interview, when they brought it up, he got extremely angry. Um, he decided he wanted to he wanted to direct. Uh, the big problem there, he had no idea how to do it. He had never been on a movie set ever. Right. And he didn't know how the camera moved. So a little bit of history. We'll go back just a little. And there, I got a quote from Molly Ringwald saying, no one held on to a grudge. Or if you knew him, no one knew how or met someone who could hold on to a grudge longer uh, than Randy. You. Now, I'm <laughs> longer than John Hughes. Yeah, and there's a few instances where I'm going to mention Yeah, that. and Molly Ringwald and Anthony Michael Hawkins both talk about it. Yeah, and uh, – he had no qualms talking about it in this New York Times interview either. Um, so this was the big reason why he decided he wanted his first movie to be set in one room. He also was afraid experienced actors would know that he had no idea what he was doing. So he had decided to work with young actors. As a result, he came up with the high school detention setting and this was how Breakfast Club was born. However, he didn't start out with Breakfast Club. He actually started out with 16 Candles. 16 Candles. So the Mr. Mom's a huge success. What happens if you write a few screenplays, which one would be National Lampoon's Vacation, Vacation, which was also another hit, which is based on his story. By the way, so is Animal House loosely. And I'm going to go back a little bit to the National Lampoon. He was famous, or one of the things he was most famous for was writing the National Lampoon uh, High School Reunion book. Right. Right. It was one of, if not their biggest selling issues. Right. It's the high school. Um, it's, it's, I don't know. What do it's, you call that? What do you, when you get it at the end of the year and everybody's pictures? Annual. There you yearbook. go. High annual year. yearbook. Either one works. High school yearbook. The problem is, is when they started writing the script, right? Mm-hmm. The issue was that they were going to adapt this. John Hughes was the one that was like, that's the most successful. What, you guys remember Animal House? Yes. Yeah. Remember the yeah. sex? Yes. What's yeah. the problem with putting that in high school? Uh, it's underage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You move it to college. That's actually how that worked. By but the at way. the same time, you cut to the two thousands, and American Pie had no problem with doing no that. No problem. But <laughs> that's yeah. Well, we could get into that's just yeah. high schoolers banging other high schoolers. But that's a side point. Anyway, moving right along, they did yeah, it. Dude, dude, they dude. moved it there. You're absolutely right. He ended up writing National Lampoon's Vacation, which is based on, it's like uh, Our Summer Vacation 57, 58, something like that. Yes. That's the name of the short story, correct? Right. I've actually read it, but it's been a long time ago. Harold Ramis directed that. Another big hit. Uh-huh. Mr. Mom's a big hit. Why did they take it away? Did they, they wouldn't let him direct it? No, essentially, essentially, and it's happened a couple of times in his career, was he wrote a script he had an idea of what he wanted that movie to be. The The studio disagreed with him, so they went in, did rewrites, hired another director, and basically changed many aspects of his film. Now, what actually changed between his original script and <laughs> the finished movie? I didn't have any. There was, okay. there was, there was no. There was he no, never no, let it go. He never let it go. Is that the reason why he, he produced the films that he probably, that he didn't direct and wrote? Right. Because he produced and wrote more than he directed. Right. He wrote, wrote, yeah. wrote and directed. And there's a few instances where this backfired on him. 
Okay. And we'll get to that as we go down chronologically through his movies. So as we're talking a little bit, if you don't mind, about yeah. National Lampoon, he worked there with another guy named PJ Rourke. And if you ever get the chance to watch, it's a great documentary. It's on, is it on Netflix? What? Uh, wasted, blah, 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 blah. Oh, I think, I think it is still on there because they have the, the, the yeah, they had, they did the movie they did about, um, Jeez, I can't remember. I know, I'm blanking. We, I didn't do, that, that didn't do I, any National Lampoon research. I, well, yeah, but I know this. I, not off the top of my head, I'm but bad But you know, we know this. Yes, though. we know this. Caddyshack. Anyway. He, smoked, he snorted cocaine in the back. Yeah, if you can actually see him snorting cocaine, he's Chevy Chase's best friend. Son of a bitch. Anyway, moving right along. I need to stop saying that. Back to what we were saying. He worked there with another guy named PJ Rourke. Do you guys know who that is? No. He's a comedian, but he's actually... He became a conservative writer. Now, when I say conservative writer, I'm not talking about Trump. So let's take the last three or four years out of your head. P.J. Rourke is a conservative guy, but I don't know that he's necessarily batshit. Yeah. You understand what I mean by that, mm -hmm. guys? He and P.J. So Ben Stein later on said the reason that he it's got not Douglas Kenny, is it? Yes, yeah, Doug Kenny. Okay. It's Doug Kenny. Thank you. You're welcome. Doug Kinney was the one that made all the money off of uh, when he sold National Lampoon. Yeah. Anyway, so PJ, so later on, Ben Stein said the reason he and John Hughes got along is because John Hughes was the only other conservative Republican in Hollywood. He was a Reagan <laughs> Republican. Oh, really? Now, PJ has said later that that's not necessarily true. He actually doesn't know, but he thought he was more conservative and he believed in middle-class America. He believed in America and this whole about America's evil never bought into any of that. Right. Which once again comes out in what? His movies. They're all about middle-class America or upper middle-class America. Yeah. And families. Well, not all of them, but most of them. Right. Even though I, that, never mind. What? I was just going to say, it just feels like that the only time where that's not the case is Home Alone because that, that house is way above upper middle class. I think cause some of it, though, is it's decisions of, this is a nice house. It looks good on yeah. film. That's cute. It's very Christmassy. It is very Christmassy. You're absolutely right. And who the hell gets to go to, I mean, there's 10,000 memes on yeah. who gets to go to Europe during Christmas and lives in this $2 million home outside of Chicago. Yeah, yeah. Probably do really well and have 18 kids. Yep. And none of them look alike. But that's beside the point, Chad. That's <laughs> beside the effing point. So back to this, I, I think it's curious that he held these grudges so long. Yeah. Because he also hated Judd Nelson. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's actually one of the things that I was going to bring up. Uh, since we're, since oh, we're hold on, everybody. Silence. Um, the man speaketh. Is it because he's got a that, penis? That what? I said, I love yeah. you and you have a penis. Uh, that's true. That there was going to be a breakfast club. <laughs> James did can he, either confirm or deny the did, lack of penis. Did Did you know that though? That there was going to be a breakfast club sequel. Yeah. No, they wanted to do one every ten years. And John Hughes shot it down because he hated Judd Nelson. Judd Nelson. You know who John Hughes said at one point he would have liked to have for that role. There was several, by the way, if you go through the list. Well, there was one that he wanted and he couldn't afford, <laughs> which blew my mind. The great master thespian, Sir Nicholas Cage. Huh. Yeah. And he couldn't, he couldn't afford it. him? <coughs> the production. The production could not afford him. Why the hell? What the hell was Nicholas Cage doing in 1980, what, four or five? Mm -hmm. I don't know. When did Peggy Sue Got Married come out? 
I don't know. I seriously don't know. But that's uh, according to um, let me cite my source here. According to it would have been eighty four, eighty five when Peggy Sue got married. Came out. Uh, according to uh, an article by Anna Classen, Nick Cage was the one strongly considered by John Hughes, and she doesn't give much detail. But she says that the reason given why he was not given the role was that the production couldn't afford him. Because he was uh, he was riding high on his uh, fast time at Ridgemont High fame. I, maybe it's because he's a Coppola. Maybe that was one of the reasons too. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe Hughes said he wanted him, but was afraid he'd get compared to a Coppola. Huh. I don't know. I'm just telling you what I read. What I studied. Get to those in a minute. So, I. Which one do you want to start out? You want to start talking about Sixteen Candles? Do you want to talk about any more of the history before we go no, into um, it? No. The one. The only thing I'll talk about, pro and I'll go in through these throughout, but um. He has two quote. There's one. There's two things. I want to. Uh, there's a quote about how he about his uh, love of movies, about how he how he made movies. This is a direct quote from Hughes again from the New York Times article. I have no interest, none whatsoever, in doing something for myself in, instead of the audience. Instead for the audience. My movies are popular because they do what they're supposed to do. You get what you think you're going to get. They're not pretentious. They're not hyped. They're accessible. Mm -hmm. Also, do you know who his uh, main inspiration was in Hollywood? Who? Frank Capra. That doesn't shock me. Um, Frank Capra was a Republican too. <laughs> I don't think that. I don't think they're religious or they're political. <laughs> oh, we're that good. Oh, no. I think it does. They're, I I don't know how, but uh, the one the one thing that they did the one thing that they, they did compare Frank Capra to was the fact that Frank Capra was not really appreciated until later in life and and past where John Hughes, Absolutely. I don't feel like John, John Hughes had some respect back then, but I think now that he's passed, he uh, is held in a more iconic stat. I, no, I, I would almost argue that John Hughes was respected more than Frank Capra. I agree with that. That's what I'm saying. But, but I think, I don't I think, think he had the iconic status that he has today. Uh, let's see, but I think he's also getting questioned more now. I think some of his films haven't aged too well. No, we even think candles would be a good example. No, and even even then during his career, there were several critics who bashed his films, calling them just just garbage. Yeah, I don't. And that, know that's if I a, agree that's with a nice. That. I don't agree with it at all either. And that's one of the things I feel that I hate about critics is the fact that they are they are at the pretentious level. They're not at the normal human. But not being. all of them felt that way. Uh, no, there weren't. They weren't all that. Roger way. Ebert loved. Um, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is one of his favorite films. It was yeah. one. It's listed as one of his films you had to watch. Richard Roper has said on multiple occasions that Ferris Bueller may be his favorite film. Yeah, I mean, not all critics, but there were a lot of critics who ripped apart his movies. Mm -hmm. And again, Hughes took it personally. Did he? Yeah. Oh yeah, Hughes. Again, Hughes had it. Hughes was very protective of his work. Yeah. So he wrote a lot of films under a pseudonym. Yeah. Dante's Edmund Dante's Edmund Dante's which is from? the from uh, the Count of Monte Cristo absolutely Alexander Dumas's best book <laughs> I'm sorry I like it more than I do Three Musketeers I never read either one of them I've seen the movies <laughs> okay then <laughs> if you're by that I prefer the Count of Monte Cristo as well I know right <laughs> yeah I do I, I don't I never had an attachment to the Three Musketeers yeah, I don't I, know why I, unless Oliver Platt does it Oh, there's certain actors. I don't even like the '70s ones with. Uh, no, I don't even like the ring. Directed by Richard Fleischer. I don't even like the Ring of the Musketeer with David Hasselhoff and Cheech Marin. There, I said it. Come at me, America. Nobody knows what that is. I don't know what that <laughs> is. I don't know what that is. 
How about the Three Musketeers with uh, Mickey and uh, Goofy and Donald? I don't even like that one. Yeah. I like the, I like the the Disney interpretation of the County Monte Cristo where Mickey's thrown in a jail for over twenty years and has to eat rats. I don't. Going, I don't think, oh, it's cousin Bernie. I don't think that happened, Chad. I think you uh, you did some quaaludes. Joe, go on with your sixteen candles. Okay. So what a lovely sound. Next thing to say, please stop. Whatever it is you're doing, please stop. Just stop. I thought she was going to work on her damn laptop. I didn't know she was going to beat mice in the head above us. Uh, so let me get past all this. I'm pissed off because of that. All right. Paul, John Hughes' death. Where's 16 Candles? So let me ask you all a question. Have you guys watched 16 Candles lately? I, honestly, I had never seen 16 Candles. How have you never seen 16 I couldn't. Candles? I just... I never, I, it never interested in me. It never sparked any kind of interest in me. However, I'm a John Hughes fan. So about five years ago, I tried to watch 16 Candles. Okay. I could not get through it. Well, it's not that bad. I, I thought it was boring. I, I actually have to agree with Chad. I have to agree with Chad. It's, it never did anything for me. And that's saying a lot because I love John Hughes, but I could not get through 16 Candles. Yeah, I, I, I was never a huge fan. Just like I'm not a huge fan of Say Anything. I know that's not John Hughes, but I'm not a big fan of Say Anything. How do you not like In Your Eyes? Okay. The heat, your eyes. It's one scene out of a hour and a half, an hour and 40 movie. I was a kid. It's one scene. The rest of it, boring nonsense. So go on with your 16 candles. Well, I actually, I was looking through, and that was the one I put the least amount of notes about. Okay. <laughs> I, I mean, there's a scene basically – where she okay i'm trying to remember it specifically because it's been a while i just watched it three years ago and i couldn't get over the uh non-inclusive nature of the movie specifically for long duck dong and a few other yeah. jokes and every time he walks in or says something stupid there's a ding like a uh, what do they call those things like in the chinese restaurants the gong the gong bang a gong do you remember that? No, I don't remember. Oh, it happens. Yeah. It it does not play well now. Wow. 30, almost 40 years on. Does not. Cool. What I find interesting about 16 Candles is that they didn't want him to do a, uh, for his first film, they wanted something a little bit more that wasn't in one room that was yeah. going to be a play, right? Yeah, which, which was The Breakfast Club. Which is what he, he wanted to do because he was terrified of being made to look like a fake. Right. So he wrote, 16 Candles, and that's the movie that they did, which was a modest hit, by the way. It was not a huge hit. No. It was a huge hit when it hit video. It actually opened number two. Do you know what the movie was that beat it number one at the box office that weekend? No idea. Break It. Oh, my God. Which will never be as good as... Breaking Breakin Two. Breaking Two. Mick Electric Boogaloo. Boogaloo. Miss you, Mick. But Breaking was number one that weekend. <laughs> yeah, pretty, wow. I keep saying pretty in pink. Yeah. Uh, the, the, oh, 16 Candles. The one thing I was going to bring up, um, I don't know if you were going to talk about this, but do you know who else auditioned for the role of Jake Ryan and who Molly Ringwald would have preferred? Ali Sheedy uh, almost was one of the people who almost got um, Molly's role, but keep going. I, I, I knew that as well. But um, during the auditions, there was one actor – who during the audition role for Jack, Jake Ryan went ahead and kissed Molly Ringwald during the audition. Oh, I did. Yeah, I know who you're talking and about. 
that actor did not get the role. Molly Ringwald said she would have preferred him to get the role. That part or that actor would have been Vigo Mortensen. Vigo Mortensen made her weak in the knees, is what she said. Yes. Uh, Hold Hold on. Silverado's Vigo Mortensen? Is he in Silverado? Yeah, he's in Silverado. <laughs> Is he really? Yeah, he's in Silverado. I have one of those trucks. I'm glad everybody could listen to you slurp down your what, Sprite. What color was your Silverado? Blue. Hmm. Hmm. False advertising. It should have been called Periwinkle, Colorado. I got nothing. You've got nothing. But you're absolutely right. So I don't think it holds up very well. So I, I, th- I think it... Yeah, he signed a three-picture deal with Universal. His next movie was The Breakfast Club. So the movie they didn't want him to do is the one that was the big hit and the one that that basically got his career going into right, time. right, yeah, in the future. So The Breakfast Club, gentlemen, I say that The Breakfast Club, to me, this is to me, is probably the best high school movie. There's no question. There's got to be. There's got to be an argument. One of you assholes no, has got to argue. I with seriously it. have no argument. Hey, to- Chad, watch this. No, the faculty. <laughs> oh no! I, I just it just dawned. I enjoy on the me. faculty. No, it just dawned on me. You're both wrong. Concrete Jungle. No, the best high school film ever. Asphalt Jungle. National Lampoon's <laughs> Senior Trip. Matt Frewer. <laughs> Boom. Hold on. Only funny line in the whole thing. Oh, there's Steady a- as she goes. <laughs> the minivan goes, only it's funny like, line maybe, in 90 minutes. Maybe, and I don't think it's better. I think the reason it may be the best high school film is if you consider it's the best high school student, uh, high school film from the viewpoints of students. If you wanted to look at it from the viewpoint of teachers, you might be able to go up the down staircase, though that's based on a book. I would say original. I mean, original, not based on a novel. Yeah, it's the best high school film. Yeah, I can't argue with it. Be- I mean, the only other one that could be comparison, and it's not really a high school film, is Ferris Bueller's Day Off, another John Hughes film. I don't know what's better. I mean, there's other movies that take place in high school that now, I'm granted, sure neither, enjoyed. And but... neither one of them actually was a real high school experience, let's be honest. But, you know, they were still, in terms of high school movies, they were entertaining. I think closest would probably be that i mean dangerous you, minds yeah you've got a catharsis ending where everything of course in a 90 minute movie has to come together and people have to have this uh this journey this right. arc you know the story arc where they, they've changed his characters which i don't think actually happens in real life yeah through the, the through the span of six seven, seven hours hours while no. you're no it doesn't happen but we're also this is as quentin tarantino says it's a movie. It's bullshit. Yeah, you yeah, do whatever you want. Yeah, just it's made it. up. It's an entertainment factor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, never looking at a movie. Especially he even said, "I've never been watching a movie where I didn't realize I'm not watching a movie." Yeah, and I yeah, and that's one thing that irritates me when watching is people talk about that doesn't happen in real life. It's not. It's a fucking movie. Nothing ever happens in real life. Get over it. If, Jeez, if, if, you're if, so angry. Well, no. If they made a movie that so happened, if they have a movie that so that was based on real life. People would go to sleep. Boyhood, for example. Yeah, I liked Boyhood. I've actually never seen it. I just wanted to be a jackass. It's really good. Yeah, but you've actually brought up something that I think is damn good. But it's long. Yeah, it's Richard Linklater. Everything he does is good. You, you, no. Newton Boy. By asking about the best high school movie, TV movie, you all actually have me thinking about 
high school movies. And again, I think it depends on, you know, what could stand against it. Again, it's the student focus is why it works. Because stand and deliver is from the viewpoint of faculty, more or less, yeah. teachers. Yeah. Lean on me is in the viewpoint of the principal. Yeah. The principal is from the viewpoint of the principal. <laughs> you smoke dope. Oh, oh wait. Dope. How about High School High? No. 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 Also, another unfunny movie. Sorry. That's Shit no way talking. Know. We're talking about the Breakfast Club. Breakfast Club, Breakfast Club is the, the best Club. high school movie. Yeah, there's no. So way I stumbled into this business. I didn't train for it. I yelled action on my first two movies before the camera was turned on, according to John Hughes. Yeah. But my uh, my generation had sucked up much attention, and here we are with kids struggling for an identity. They were forgotten, and I don't think a kid's is lower form of the human species. Another quote. Many. Filmmakers portray teenagers as immoral, ignorant with pursuits that are pretty base, but I haven't found that to be the case. I listen to kids. I respect them. Some of them are as broad as any of the adults I've met. I think he just had an understanding, specifically at that time, in his 30s, in his life, of what that was like. Now, the language doesn't quite transfer 30-some years on, right? Right. And that one scene underneath the table. Well, yeah, it doesn't. And Molly Ringwald's talked about that, basically, where she's got her yeah. yeah, and then later on they fall in love, and she goes, "That wouldn't happen." Right. But once again, it is a movie. Well, I think that you talked, you did a couple quotes from him, but there's another one that um, let me see. Oh, here it is. Uh, he had a quote about how people didn't think teenagers were serious, and and I actually agree with this quote. People forget that when you're 16, you're probably more serious than you'll ever be again. You think seriously about the big questions. And I read that quote and I was like, that's probably true because right now my quote unquote deep thinking has to be focused on my work, on certain other elements. Your you children. Know, yeah. So it's not, I'm not sitting here thinking cosmic thoughts. I mean, he didn't come up with it. I needed to cover it for his kids. Yeah. yeah no, I mean. Children. Think of the children. Phil's kids. Uh, a kid do on her show? Yeah, don't Ask do me it. later. No, I'm not. But again, yeah, so I mean, I think that quote also, like the ones you were doing, gets to the root of another reason why those that film works is, um, I mean, you have a character, just a high school that admits to considering suicide. What yeah. other movie did that? And we know that we know high schoolers consider suicide. There's tons of studies that say they do. John Hughes actually put that out as a character. And that, you know, these serious thoughts, it wasn't just, oh, I want to get laid. I want to do this. I want to, it, no, they were having these. And school violence. <laughs> so um, one thing, um, I guess one quote we can talk about Hughes too, is the fact of how he shot movies starting with The Breakfast Club. He started it, he shot it in. Now, now, so here's the thing. Uh, this is, takes place before modern, modern movie making. So they actually used film in cameras. Uh, John Hughes shot more film than most directors. Yep. Precisely, be precisely because he wants extra choices in his favorite part of filmmaking, the editing room. He loved editing, which is nothing. Which after I discovered this, I love him more because my passion is editing as well. It's my least favorite part of it. Um, editing is the best comic tool. I'm good at it because it's like writing. It's solitary. Direct quote from John Hughes. So. You got any more on the Breakfast Club? Do we move on? 
I, I find it fascinating that we could have of the different people that could have been cast in the movie. I'm not going to sit here and name them all off, but there was a ton of them. If you look it up, I, I actually, if you're a fan of the breakfast club, Google all the different people that were considered for those roles, all the different people that auditioned for the roles. One of the things I want to say is, is that I read a lot about Molly Ringwald and Anthony Michael Hall and his relationship. Apparently he hung out with them a lot. Mm -hmm. Well, they, they were 15 and 16 years old. I mean, they were still, she was barely 17 when the breakfast club was being, well, or she turned 17 during the breakfast like club. That, yeah. She was 15, 16, dirty. Mm -hmm. was, uh, he in his, 16 was he in his mid thirties? He was in his mid thirties. Well, uh, no, no, I'm not talking about anything. Oh, they, no. He just, he just hung out with them. They went to concerts. They went to dinner. They did things together. But I think that also has to do with his childhood because he even said in high school, he didn't fit into any of those roles. Yeah. He was an outsider. He, he did have friends, but he never really fit into any of the cliques. He was right. basically kind of quiet, stuck to himself. But he also had to make the movie work. And, and again, I'm going back to Anna Karina's reads. Anna Karina, that's not her name. The person I referenced earlier. Uh, <coughs> she reports on how when Molly Ringwald first met Anthony Michael Hall, they hated each other. Like they didn't want to work together. And John Hughes, to get them to get along, took them out. And actually they went music shopping. Yep. And it was because they liked the same type of music that they got to where they could work together on film. And I think that's really, I think that shows a little bit about how John Hughes worked with, you know, kind of a teenager mentality and things like that. And one of his, another quote that he had was about why he liked young actors. And I thought this was relevant as we talk about this. His quote is, I like young actors because they're so unspoiled. Not like some of those actors who are about half an hour into their 15 minutes of fame by the time they get to me. I think he liked discovering talent. Yeah, and, and that's one that he actually, he, he went, but he gave himself this nickname. He called himself the Team King. I didn't know that he actually called himself that. Yeah, he called himself the Team King. So I find, did you guys know, um, I'm sorry, I actually <clears throat> lost my spot, you were saying? Well, I, I'll, I'll, I can fill time for a second. I know you said you uh, people could look it up, but if you are curious about some of the people who were also considered for uh, some of the some of the different roles, I know we were talking about. Uh, um, I know we were talking about Breakfast Club, but I know eventually we're going to get to Ferris Bueller. I assume. Uh, some of the actors considered for that included people that are obviously well-known still today. Johnny Depp was considered, <laughs> Rob Lowe, John Cusack, Jim Carrey, Tom Cruise. Jim Carrey also auditioned for Pretty in Pink. Yep. He actually, he auditioned for Breakfast Club as well. Is it Breakfast Club? Maybe I'm wrong. Okay. And Michael J. Fox. By the way, if Michael J. Fox would have got that role and Back to the Future, uh, he I don't know. Owned the world. Yeah. Oh, so also, out of all of his films, I don't know that they're my two favorite, but The Breakfast Club and the Ferris, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off are the two that are on the National Registry. Right. But there was a movie that came out before. So should we move on and talk about the movie that came up in the same year, in the exact same year as The Breakfast Club? Sure. Weird Science? 
Is it his least film or is it Curly Sue? He hates. He he even ad- admits that he hates Weird Science. How come? It did not turn out the way he wanted it to. He thought it's crude. He thought it w- it wasn't very funny. I, I agree. I don't know about the crudeness, but I don't think any of it's funny. Yeah, I hadn't he, seen it since I was a kid, but I watched it a few years ago. And I was I, he I just he just watching. It. I haven't watched it in years, but he was not happy with it at all. My Science Project is far superior, isn't it? Though I'm assuming it is. I love Weird My Science Project. Dennis Hopper, rest in peace. Weird Science is not. A, I didn't even enjoy it that much as a kid. A lot of people love it though. Yeah, it's, it wasn't a big hit. I mean, I think people loved looking at Kelly LeBrock. I'm not trying to be crude, but. You know, there's a great story. Do you know the story about Robert Downey Jr. and uh, how he got mad at um, – Is this about taking a shit in a trailer? John Hughes. Yeah, he was so mad at John Hughes that he went to Kelly LeBrock's trailer. I don't know how they got back at John Hughes directly, but – He didn't do it. Robert Downey says he didn't do it. What happened was is he said later on when John Hughes started asking everyone on the set who took a shit at Kelly LeBrock's trailer, she got to John – he got to – Robert Downey Jr. and Robert Downey Jr. goes, oh, I wish I thought of it. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I had done it, but he didn't do it. Well, according to an interview with Playboy, he says he did. Oh, well, see, I read something today where he said he didn't. Ooh, I wonder what he's afraid. He's afraid of, John, of Steven Seagal's vengeance. Ooh. Um, but he, he said he did it because he was upset with, uh, with John Hughes. So... So what do you guys think? I mean, do you want to spend a lot of time on it? I, I no, don't care for it. So he just didn't like it? He didn't, didn't like it. The way it. Actually, I think out of all of his movies, he did not like that. I think he actually has um, a fondness for Curly Sue, which we, uh, I, we'll we get to that eventually because that's actually the movie that killed his directing career. But well, The other thing that I will say is that obviously Weird Science, um, one of y'all want to do a brief rundown of that plot. These two guys are computer nerds and they work up a computer and then a computer program and they put all the different things that they like from women Women. models into the computer program and it makes Kelly Kelly LeBrock, LeBrock, which, and she's able to grant wishes and bring things in. It makes no no sense sense. at all. I'm I'm curious why he did it if he hated it that much because he wrote it. He wrote it, but I I mean, I think it might have been, and this is just me assuming. But like I said, he was still a relatively new director. He did 16 Candles. He did. This, I mean, this is all within three years. Yeah. Two no, years. Two years because he did Breakfast Club and We're Science in the same year. <laughs> yeah. Um, that he just, I think he went for balls to the wall and then was not happy with the result. Huh. Okay. I, I just. I, I, I know one of the, uh, the, the scene in which she, uh, Kelly LeBrock had to kiss uh, the 14-year-old actor. I'm blanking. Yeah, he stuck his tongue. Is it the tongue thing? Yep, stuck his tongue down her throat, and she said if he ever did again, she'd uh, kill him. Yeah, beat his ass. <laughs> yeah. Yep. But, uh, okay, so I don't have anything else about words. No, I don't – I'm not enjoying – Ferris Bueller's Day Off is his next one, right? Yep. I've never met anybody that didn't like Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I've it's met a, a few people who haven't seen it. I've met several people who haven't seen it. I've met a younger people who haven't seen it. What but about it, our former producer? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> there was – we never got around to doing the show of what has what hasn't Haley, Haley seen the niche. <laughs> maybe she'll come back on the show. Maybe, maybe. No. I think she's done with us. I yeah. think we're done. I think we've burned that bridge somehow, some way. Flames. Anyway, back to Ferris Bueller. It's just an enjoyable movie, man. 
I, yeah. it, I, it's a crowd pleaser across young, old, middle aged. Don't you think? Yeah, you like. Uh, yeah. And, and and honestly, I, he said Matthew Broderick. Nobody else could have done it, but Matthew Broderick. And I agree with it. I agree. I, it's just that role. Even though Matthew Broderick is the exact opposite of Ferris Bueller. Yeah, I probably yeah, yeah. in real life. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't. He no, is the most up. If you if you see, he's him, not charming. He's not charming. He's very uptight. Yeah, he's not Ferris. He Bueller. is. He is in reality Cameron. <laughs> Is that true? I'm guessing if you if you look at interviews if you watch interviews with Matthew Broderick he is he is dead up Cameron. Also, we killed a guy. <laughs> yeah, that's killed true. a guy. Yeah. <laughs> the first edit of the film, you know how long it ran? I'm gonna guess about three hours. Two hours and forty five minutes. Yeah. Two hours and forty five minutes, and maybe we'll have a guest on that could talk more about that later. Yeah, hopefully. Um. So uh, go ahead, James. Well, I, I was going to say it, and what you have to remember about Ferris Bueller's Day Off is, of course, uh, it it spun off into the sitcom Ferris Bueller, which uh, he did not approve of. I've never no, seen he it. did not. No, he um, hated it. Uh, which it's did awful. feature, however, a a certain Jennifer Aniston. Yeah. Do do uh, do 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 do. I prefer Mia Sarah. I only ran 13 episodes. Brunette in the movie? Yes, she's she is hot. Yeah, yeah. Time cop. Mm. I can't wait. I, I can see why uh, he didn't approve of it um, because um, this came about out about the same time as the far superior TV show, Parker Lewis Can't Lose, which of course was going to beat it in ratings because it's right there in the title, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> Parker Lewis can't lose. Synchronized watches, mofos. Yeah. Um, for, no, some reason, for some reason, uh, because a big part, I argue one of the reasons Ferris Bueller's Day Off works is because the scene is as much of a character as everything else. The museum, the, you know, there's, there's those things. Uh, the TV show just said, screw that, we're going to move it to Santa Monica. No reason to do that, but Ferris Bueller now lives in Santa Monica. Um, and he's a cool guy on campus. That's that. That's all they kept. But everything about Ferris Bueller's Day Off is amazing. The way it's shot, the music selection. The well, I don't acting. know about the way it's shot. Oh, you don't? I, love I mean, there's certain shots in it that are the whole memorable. the whole scene in the museum, the parade, which took forever. You, if you read an interview with Paul Hirsch, who edited it took forever they had to go back after test audiences and go back and redo that because it just didn't work right and then the scene at the end with them running running you know the the whole chase back to the house i mean there are several iconic scenes in that movie that are shot and edited and the music plays oh let's talk about the music are you going to say something about the music well i was about to say and and that scene of him running back I mean, Family Guy has made allusion to it. There's been commercials. Oh, I agree. I, I just, I don't think of, I, I get it as memorable. I, maybe it's a cinematography thing. I mean, what I was going to say is back to music. So he picked the music for most of his films. He yes. was very, so. He was methodical on every, every as, aspect. So you think, oh, it's very 80s, but he was picking it. So, do, do, do. He picked it. That was not a hit. Right. It barely registered when it came out in the States. He liked it and put it in the movie. That's what so made, made it a made. hit. Oh, that's I know. the reason people remember it now. Yeah, it didn't could not have cared less before he put it in that movie. Right. 
I didn't know that. I found it fascinating. Oh, yeah, you know, it he is, is kind of the Tarantino of the '80s when it comes to music. Oh yeah, all, and it, every one of almost every one of his movies has a memorable song in it. While I was doing research today, swear to God, I was listening to the Thompson Twins. They're the ones that sing the song at the end of "If You Me." I can't remember the words. And let's be honest. Okay, it, this was a popular song way before this movie, and we're gonna get to the plane, trains, automobiles. <laughs> but mess around. I mean, come on. <laughs> I mean, that revitalized that song. Ted I'm sorry. Two. So we'll get to it in a minute. Let's so, uh, real quick, I want to point out, though, we were talking about the cinematography and all that. Do you know who the cinematographer was on Ferris Bueller's Day Out? I don't remember. Go. Tak Fujimoto. Fujimoto. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That, he shot, he shot uh, 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 Silence of the Lambs. Death Race 2000. Uh-huh. Uh, a little film called uh, Star Wars, where he was a second unit photographer. A um, couple other, Borderline, Where the Buffalo Roam, based on Hunter S. Thompson. I was getting close uh, to Oscar work, but yeah, yeah, you keep talking about these Corman stuff. Swing Shift, Cocoon the Return, Married to the Mob. Okay, they can't all be winners, but... Married to the Mob a good movie. Those are, he, 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 he was a cinematographer for David... Uh, Oh shit! Who directed Silence of the Lambs? Not Jonathan Demme. Demme. He did all of Demme's films, to my knowledge. Um, uh, yeah, they started working Demme. together with. That's where Jonathan Demme got his start. Was Roger Corman? Okay, um, but that th- that that thing you do, yeah, um, the Sixth Sense, uh, the Manchurian Candidate remake, a bunch of other that happening with M Night Shyamalan. Uh, we got and- it. <laughs> Actually, I wanted to bring it up because the last one that he worked on has never been screened outside of many things, and that's God's Behaving Badly. Which, by the way, if you're interested in films that you look at the cast and say, I'd like to see that, but then you know that's bad because they've never released it beyond things, look up God's Behaving Badly. But I just want to point that out because we're talking about cinematography. So John Hughes worked with somebody that worked on Star Wars, worked on everything else. So it's, it's not yeah. overly surprising that it's got a unique vision. Yeah. Okay. The one thing I'll say about Ferris Bueller now is, um, and then we can move on. And this is just my personal theory. Watching it as a kid, you everybody thought John Ferris Bueller was like amazing, right? But now as an adult, do you look back and go, that guy is just a straight up asshole? Yes. Okay. I kind of thought sure. it at the time, but I it's hard not. But the reason is, is once again, it's Broderick's performance. It's hard yeah. not. It's even if you think he's an asshole, it's hard to dislike him. Yeah. And you're still pulling for him at the end. Although you now empathize somewhat with Mr. Rooney. Well, not but well yeah, yeah. I'm talking about the character, not Jeffrey Jones. Okay, okay. Yeah, oh a couple different things too. I, I think he's in the, the Deadwood movie, by the way. I know oh. Oh. Oh, yeah, he's in the Deadwood movie. Huh. I, I think the uh the two things I want to bring up real quick, useless trivia. The people who played as parents weren't actually married and then after the movie they got married. Yeah. But, and then they got divorced. That's true. But I also love the fact that due to the fight clubbing of society, there are now conspiracy theories that say Ferris Bueller doesn't exist. And it was all a figment of Cameron's imagination. And that's why he can do these phenomenal things. Um, and so if you're interested in that, look up Ferris Bueller's day off uh, fight club theory. The most unbelievable part of that movie is getting to be able to do all that shit in Chicago traffic in eight hours. Yeah, in eight hours. No way Less in than hell. eight hours. No way in hell. <clears throat> right? Yeah, that, I agree. That's the most unbelievable part, or is it just me? Oh, no, there's a lot of unbelievable parts in that. Yeah, but it's a lot of fun. Once again, it is a movie. I, I know. I, is that 
or, and as much as I love what the movie we're about to talk about, which one is more culturally, in, which one had the bigger cultural impact? That or The Breakfast Club? I think it's Ferris it's Bueller. Ferris, oh, man, God, that's hard. It's hard, though, isn't it? But because Ferris Bueller influenced, you see it in Deadpool, and you know kids are laughing at Deadpool. Yeah. I don't even understand. Don't even, they just think but at the same time, how many, how many riffs have been done of Breakfast Club of Judd Nelson when he walks down the football field at the end and throws his fist up in the air? There's a ton. There's a ton. Nobody ever thinks, don't you forget about I mean, me and don't think about Breakfast Club. Club yeah. You I don't know. It's hard. It, it's I hard. think it's Ferris Bueller. I, and this is just me spitballing and throwing it out. Yeah, I, I haven't done a quantitative I, research yeah, on this. I, but. Yeah, I can't. I can't. But no. can you imagine not one, but two? Yeah, I can't agree with you, and I can't deny Disagree that. with me. Yeah, I can't deny it. And yeah. what did he follow it up with? What are you going to say, James? Oh, and I, I, I think it also depends on um, – I think Ferris Bueller has aged better. I mean, than The Breakfast Club? Yeah. I haven't watched Ferris Bueller in a while. I watched The Breakfast Club a few months ago and loved it just as much. In fact, I thought it was damn near perfect. Well, let me say it's aged better politically. Yeah. Other than the one scene, there's some other stuff that probably is not, but I, I don't know. I, I It's damn near per- perfect movie. Oh, no, no. I, I, I'm saying, and, and yeah. but it, I have an attachment to it that I don't have to Ferris Bueller. An emotional attachment. I have. I love that movie. I love that movie. But anyway. So let's move on to the next one, Joe. Which I also love. I have a deep attachment to this film. As do I. It is the best Thanksgiving film ever made. Yes. What is it, Chad? Planes. Trains. And automobiles. automobiles. Thanks, James, for catching on to that. Yeah. I... I, Roger Ebert, it is said that Roger Ebert, of course, right, this wouldn't make him special. People do this every Thanksgiving. I do it as well when I can. I, I think I did it this past Thanksgiving. Would watch it every Thanksgiving. It's one of his favorite movies to watch. Do you know how long it took him to write that movie? Three days. Three days. Yep. This is a direct quote from John Hughes. I just started it, stopped to go to sleep, got up, continued, went back to sleep for a while, dreamed about it, Got up, finished it. I never stopped being inside it. John Hughes shot over 600,000 feet. That's 180,000 meters of film, almost twice the industry average shooting planes, trains, and Because, again, he liked to have as much coverage as possible because he wanted to make sure in that editing room he had every possible scenario. And they kept chasing snow throughout the Midwest. (laughs) They could not find snow. So the rumored three-hour version of the film does indeed exist, guys. Did you know this? No, I would love to see it. Although not in order. Moreover, it's a mess of footage that would take months, maybe even years, according to Hughes, to transform it into an actual film. It is locked away in a paramount vault, and according to Hughes, most of it is probably deteriorated by now. That's depressing. Some people say his wife's got it. Hmm. So, uh, Average writing time for a screenplay in those days is about three to five days with 20-some rewrites would be what he would do. Right. 20-some rewrites on most of his screenplays. Which, I mean, the one thing we should mention that I didn't mention at the beginning, we were talking about how prolific a writer he was. He was working on 100 movies at a time. So you're talking about Ferris Bueller, three hours long? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, because he was working on She's Having a Baby at the same time. They cross over each other a lot. So according to Paul Hurst, the original cut of the movie was three hours and 40 minutes long for planes, trains, and automobiles. 
He and John Hughes edited down the two hours. The version was test screened. It was probably used to edit trailers for the film, which is why they show a lot of deleted scenes. I didn't get a chance to go back and look at them. I just remember the original noise as the thing goes across the screen. Yes. Do you know what I'm talking mm -hmm. about? It was just black. Uh, the movie was then edited again down to one hour and 33 minutes for the theatrical release. According to Hersh, a two-hour version still exists, but he doesn't know where it's at. Yeah. I want to say, and this might be getting a little too personal, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles was probably the first movie where I, I actually cried. I don't know if it's the first movie I cried, but I'm yeah, sure I cried. I, I cried, and it was I was, a, I was a child, and I was crying at a movie, but yet I was laughing hysterically at the same time, and that's why this movie is so iconic to me. So uh, Is it pulled but, every single emotion out of me? Because I was I, even angry at Steve Martin for being a jackass to John Candy, and I was angry at John Candy for being the way he was, but at the same time, I was laughing at their, 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 the insanity and crying at the heartbreak of See, the, Chad, the Larry Bird doesn't do as much ball handling in one night as you do in an hour. <laughs> I, Steve Martin said it's one of the best screenplays he ever wrote, or ever read. Ever read, yeah. But do you think uh, – and I'm not going to take away from John Hughes. I'm getting ready to take away from John Hughes. You bastard. Do you think that one of the reasons John Hughes was as good as he was was because of the life that he lived? Because this is another thing he based on something that happened to him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He got laid over. Yeah, yeah. And the it was severe winds, canceled the flight, and he had to get for a pitch. He had to get from New York back to Chicago. Yeah, he was coming back from a pitch, and he there was a snowstorm. There was all the stuff that kept happening. Uh, the plane he eventually got on ended up actually being diverted to Denver. And then it was diverted to Phoenix. And if you know anything about basic geography, Chicago to New York shouldn't involve Denver nor Phoenix. Nor Phoenix, um, right. <laughs> which is the joke in the movie. Right. And so, yeah. It, it <laughs> he was, ended up in Wichita, Kansas. Yeah. He, the, the trip was so hellish that he wrote the first 60 pages just recounting what happened to him. Of the original script. So see, Steve Martin was surprised to discover the script's 145-page length, 145 pages for a 90-minute comedy, with a comedy typically aiming for 90 pages. When Martin met with Hughes, he asked him if he had any intention of cutting your script. According to Martin, Hughes looked at Martin strangely and said, cutting? <laughs> with no humor. Yeah, yeah. Well, do you know who was originally supposed to direct this? No. I didn't know he wasn't going to direct it. Yeah, I thought it. he was always going to direct it. I'm, I'm sure I'm going to mispronounce this. Howard Deutsch? Howard Deutsch directed uh, Pretty in Pink. He also directed the sequel to uh, Grumpy Grumpier Old Man. He yep. uh, directed, uh, what's the other? Uh, he directed Some Kind of Wonderful. Some Kind of Wonderful. Pretty Deutsch was directed Pretty in Pink and, and Some Kind of Wonderful. Which are both written by John Hughes. Sorry. Yep. Go ahead. And Hughes actually didn't decide to take back over the directing duty on this until Steve Martin signed off. When Steve Martin signed on, he wanted to direct Steve Martin, and Deutsch got to direct instead The Great Outdoors. Which, he, he was going to do The Great Outdoors. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he was going, and they couldn't do it because of planes, trains, and automobiles. And However, I also love The Great Outdoors. It's not the same kind of movie. No, but man, I love The Great Outdoors. I, like the, I watched it, we watched it Halloween last yeah. year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Or was it two years ago? It was two years ago. It was two years ago. Still laugh. Anyway. 
But yeah, so that's that's the story of how that happened. And they wanted Tom Hanks. Tom Hanks was unavailable. There's a ton of people that could have been in planes, trains, and automobiles that they went through. John Candy wasn't the first pick either. Oh, really? You know, who was the first pick? You know, he actually wanted Tom Hanks and John Travolta or something like that. Oh, and the that studio was... didn't want John Travolta because at the time he was considered box office poison. Yeah. Wow. Look it up. It, it's uh, it's interesting. So. The teaser for she's having a baby. I'm going to skip a little bit. So if you're watching, if you're watching planes, trains, and automobiles, the wife is at home waiting on her husband. In the background on the TV, she's watching. You can hear a scene from she's having a baby. Oh, you're really? like, yeah. You never noticed that. No, when I never you're waiting that. for the phone to ring. You can hear when it cuts to her bedroom. It's it's she's having it's it's watch her face screaming at. I would go barefoot. Yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. That's the reason why Kevin Bacon's in it. So, Mono, the She's Having a Baby, was shot before Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Right. They couldn't get the editing right on She's Having a Baby. Right. So, the teaser trailer for She's Having a Baby appeared in 1987 video release of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. But the film was not released until a year later due to John Hughes having problems editing the film during post-production. I find that fascinating that it came out after Planes, Trains, and, and Automobiles. Yeah. And that explains why Kevin Bacon is in planes trains and automobiles he's the one running who's uh, yeah, chasing Martin Martin first for taxi. Cab. and john candy i forgot was in she's having a baby as a small role i didn't know yeah it's been a long time since I've and seen i don't it. remember it in a long time i, I can't remember, remember i remember scenes it. in it oh really i didn't care for it i liked it even as a kid i haven't seen it in a long time it was one of his most personal films and he had a hard time for the fact that it, it kind of bombed yeah do you know um useless trivia but for anybody that's a star trek fan that movie uh planes trains and automobile was supposed to be the first appearance or first credit of a star trek a later star trek actress but they had to reshoot her scenes because she couldn't stop laughing at john candy really jerry ryan huh jerry ryan was originally in planes trains and automobiles on the bus scene but she <laughs> couldn't help but laugh at john candy so they filmed it but every time she would be on screen. She would start, they could tell she was laughing and they had to cut the role and refilm it. Uh, similar story, um, uh, actress Deborah Lamb was in the film in a strip scene. There, there was going to be a strip club scene involved. That scene got cut. They didn't tell her till she saw a screening. <laughs> that happens a lot in Hollywood, actually. Yeah, yeah. That, that's an old story. So, planes, trains, and automobiles. Is my favorite John Hughes film. Even though Other I useless. have a really deep attachment to The Breakfast Club. Other useless trivia. I don't have an attachment to The Breakfast Club. That I, I have a with... deep attachment to The Breakfast Club. Uh, okay. But I I'm don't. You know, I know nobody cares. I know. <laughs> I don't have the attachment to Breakfast Club that I do as Plane Trains and Automobiles. Plane Trains and Automobiles. I, I agree with Chad. Has a, has a huge attachment to me. Everything about it. I, Breakfast Club. I mean, I like I it. Think, I think one of my issues with The Breakfast Club is that all the popular kids in my high school liked it. Oh, yeah, I can see yeah. that. And so the popular kids liked it, and it's supposed to be a movie about outsiders. Meanwhile, you know, I'm getting... Well, I'm glad you knew what the popular kids liked. And I just know you had a little conversation with them. It must have been nice. Yeah, it must have been. No. Well, I, you guys are right. Well, you guys are absolutely right. I just, I just, I have... I when I was shut up in my locker, I could hear them. It was, you know, James is bleeding in there, but let's talk about what movie we're going to watch later. Wait, you, um, what? What? Let's let's back up a little bit. <laughs> James is bleeding. See, he is anus. 
forget it. I uh, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles is my favorite John Hughes film. Yeah. Joe, do you, uh, useless trivia again, do you know who was going to originally do a, an original song that was going to be the Planes, Trains, and Automobile theme song? No. Winger. And the Winger. only reason it didn't happen is because of Paramount. Tell me Winger. What is it? Winger. No. John Hughes was going to collaborate with Elton John. Oh, that's so cool. And Elton John had actually finished writing the theme song. They were getting ready to record it, and then Paramount went, that's great, but if it's going to be in our movie, we own the Masters. And Elton John Elton said, John wouldn't do that. No. And the song was done, ready to be recorded, written. I would love to know what that song was. But Elton John and John Hughes were the only people that had access to it, and I'm sure it's somewhere. But you could have had the Elton John theme song, but it's all Paramount's fault because they. Still, we get the cover of "Every Time You Go Away, You Take a Piece of Me with You." And let's talk about the ending. Okay. It's a comedy. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, at the end. That's what I'm saying. We yeah. ne- but we never get pissed at it. No, we don't. Even though it is just a switcheroo out of the it blue at the end. It completely devastates you, but at the same time pulls you in at the same time, which is another reason why. But you have watched enough movies to know that that should piss you off, and not in a good way of like a good switcheroo. I don't know that that's an extremely clever switcheroo. Why does it work? If it was another but- movie with another cast with less writing yeah and you delivery. would get you would be mad oh man you would be like that's fucking lame the way and you know you would be the way but, john but the way john not only uh, sorry john candy sells it john candy selling john candy. steve martin's reaction to the news and you have just spent what 60 75 minutes no you spent 90 minutes that's the last three minutes yeah, of that well movie. okay you spent 90 minutes laughing your ass off granted there were parts of conflict where you're like ah oh, damn but they're really <laughs> just laughing and then all of a sudden this gut punch hits you but also isn't well it ends with them everything okay around the dinner table and smiling no they never make it to the dinner table they go in and it ends and he's hugging his wife and it cuts to dale griffith twisting his hat like this, as he's like, you have a beautiful, twisting his hat, and because then it comes to John Candy's face, and then comes smiles, and that's how it ends. It's Curly Sue ends with, I mean, uh, Uncle Buck ends with the same kind of. Yeah, sorry. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's John Candy, who's never, who's probably, based on what we're seeing, this is probably the first really social interaction he's had since the death of his wife. And you're seeing Long those, yeah, yeah. those reactions. Other than his customers. I yeah, guess. and you're seeing that reaction of, I don't know how to feel comfortable right here, but I... Because my wife likes me, and my customers like me. and I, Which, by the way, also parodied by Family Guy. Family all that guy. There's but, a whole scene in Ted 2 that is completely lifted out of planes, trains, and automobiles. They don't even try to hide it. Uh, it's the same but, song. But do you think the... Uh, well, I think the reason you don't get mad at it it's like you all have been saying the actors, but also you have such a deep emotional investment in both of those characters by the end of that. But movie. they're both and real characters. I know I people. I could name people. I'm not going to because uh, they may listen to this. But I know. Don't people, worry about it. Nobody's <laughs> listening. I I know people that I can say, okay, they're like the John Candy <laughs> character. Like they're. They've had horrible stuff happen in their life, but they're not going to talk about it. 
and I know those people, but I also know people that are so focused on X, whatever X is, their career or whatever, that they're much more like Steve Martin's character. And I think that's why you don't get mad at it because you do realize that like, there's people in my life that I get aggravated with, but then I have to step back and say, you know, at the end of the day, they, they go home to an empty apartment or which is where I'm going after this is over. But it, that's fine. That's but again, but <laughs> to answer your question, it's just masterful delivery of the whole thing. I right? get, and, well, that there's three-dimensional characters and it's wonderful writing. And yeah. I think the execution of the film, I'll give him credit directing. That's actually a movie I like the look of. Yeah. That, Scrooged, and Ghostbusters, or for some odd reason, I just love the look of that. No, no, they all kind of have a similar. All three, yeah. Have a, I don't know what that is. I don't, I don't know enough about cinematography to say what that kind of flat matte eighty. I like it. Yeah, um, uh, it's very crisp. James, where did James go? Anyway, He's being I, behind it. It's okay. There, we miss you. Who are we replacing him with? <laughs> <laughs> Why do we need to replace him? We didn't add him. I mean, oh, there you are. Oh hey. my God! There you uh, are. So, you'll miss. You'll miss me when I'm gone. Wait, I'm already gone. Hell, I don't know what's going on. <laughs> the place raising all my bills is agreed that it's all three of our favorite. Yeah. I mean, I oh, love yeah. it. I can yeah, it's, over. it's one of those movies that if it's on, I'll stop and watch it. And I think that's I, real quick. Thing, Ghostbusters. I think that's why it works. Yeah. I think that's why it may be, to me, John Hughes' best film. Because as I've gotten older and I've critiqued things and I've grown as a person – Breakfast Club doesn't always hit me the same way maybe it did when I was younger. And I, that's the reason why I kept saying I have an emotional – remember what we're talking about? An emotional yes. attachment. But I think that I think Chad hit it. You watch Planes, Trains, and Automobiles when you're young, and it's a comedy, and it's funny, and, oh, those aren't pillows, whatever. I watch it now. See, you laugh even here. That's funny. I mean, I think you can bring that up to a man of a certain age, and he's going to Google every time. Yeah. Well, but I think that's it. I think that I I know when I am 60 years old, if I live that long, that I'll be able to watch planes, trains, and automobiles. Oh, no. Um, but but it'll still be that movie for me. I don't know. I can appreciate Ferris Bueller still. I can appreciate, but planes, trains, and automobiles is a human universal as far as John Hughes films go. I agree. And it's also one of those movies where no matter if you run into it on the TV, wherever it's playing, you know where you're at. You can st- you can stop doing what you're doing and watch it and still get into the movie. I agree. So should, we've talked about she's having a baby. She's having a baby. He was very – he felt very – I don't know what – I couldn't find what happened in the editing room. I didn't have time of why it took so long to get yeah. it done. I know they had problems with editing, but I don't know the whole story. Again, it's him being such a prolific film – shooter a film that he probably i'm assuming it there was just too much to go through so moving right along i think we should talk about Uh, the next movie which is uncle buck Buck. and one interesting fact i'll say about uncle buck is um this is actually the part where his uh relationship with universal started to crumble what not beethoven no not beethoven Uh, actually uh there is uh uh one the, the there's one more movie that actually completely cemented his uh hatred with universal and he left universal after this movie but we'll get to that uh but uncle buck um hughes was a control freak as we mentioned regarding his creations and rightly so uh universal without telling him sold the rights to the movie to cbs so they can make a tv show based on the character hughes absolutely despised the show 
Um, he, uh, but most importantly, he had plans to make a sequel to Uncle Buck. He was he was in the full writing process of creating the sequel to, as a follow up to Uncle Buck. Go ahead, James. Really? Do you, know, do, do you know who starred as TV's Uncle Buck? <laughs> I don't. I didn't look that up. Kevin Meany. I remember the oh, show. Kevin I loved Uncle Buck. Um, yes, I loved Kevin Meany, but even when he played it. Um, cause I, I remember watching the show cause I liked Uncle Buck. I'll watch the TV show. I was young, didn't know better, but it was still, it was, um, I love Kevin Meany and it wasn't Kevin Meany enough. I mean, yeah. he could have made the character his own. Why are you doing that? You're going to put your eye out. Yeah. If they would have, if they would have gave him the permission to make Uncle Buck his own, but the network basically set him up to be. John Candy impersonator, and and I always thought that was a grave misuse of Kevin Meany. However, Hughes felt about the show. To me, the biggest sin of that show is that they didn't give Kevin Meany a chance to be. It, it's it's like the Paul Lynn show, making Paul Lynn the father of two girls for the Paul Lynn show. That was a stupid idea. Same thing with Kevin Meany, Uncle Buck. So yeah. Uncle, he John Candy also wasn't the first choice, right? I don't know the answer. There were several different people that were considered for Uncle Buck, and none of them really worked out. And I can't remember all the names as I was going through them today because I have eight pages here. If we actually did all the stuff that I'd read about, yeah. we'd be here for four hours. But um, the one thing about this is they literally never told John Hughes that they sold the rights to his movie to another studio. He read about it in the trade papers. He didn't know about National Lampoon's European vacation. He read about he didn't find out about it until the tra- he saw the trailer. Oh really? Wow. <laughs> Sorry. No, that's amazing. So yeah, I mean, I don't have a lot to say about Uncle Buck because again, it Uncle Buck does not have a personal I actually didn't care for it as much as a kid. I like John Candy. I James, like- you all right? Yeah, it's my back. It's good. It's just broke. But yeah, we're fine. It's loud. Why don't you go play that piano in the back? Is that a piano? No, that's that's a that's a, 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 a computer system. Looks like a piano. Yeah, well, that's what they call them in Mississippi. They haven't got the new ones. They're yeah. waiting. For, <laughs> they're waiting. They're waiting for the Apple II. I no, you are typing it. It just sounds like a goddamn Billy Joel song. <laughs> that's a harpsichord. Oh my God! Every time I hear him work on the computer, I think of the Adams Family. I want to go to Pornhub. Goddamn a piano man. <laughs> <laughs> no, I liked. Uh, I, I did like Uncle Buck. Well, didn't start the fire. <laughs> it was always burning since the world's been turning. That's what my attorney told me to say. Uh, no, I liked Uncle Buck. I think I Uncle, like Uncle Buck, Buck better now than I did when I was younger. Well, and I think What's Uncle Buck is it uh, is more broad than any of his movies, and that's good. Yeah, and Curly Sue. Don't you think Curly Sue? We'll get. We'll get well, to we'll Curly Sue. I, I think but Uncle Brock. Uncle Brock. Why did he want to do a sequel? He loved the movie. He wanted to make a sequel. He had all these great plans of of what he wanted to do with Uncle Buck. He loved the character. Did he like John Candy's performance? I did. Read I'm something. guessing. He, I didn't get that detail. So one of the stories is, is I assumed he and John Candy were really close. I don't know if they were or were not because no. they worked together so much, right? And he was Uncle. So I assumed he wrote that for John Candy, but it's not necessarily true that he did. Wow. And one night, John Candy, he heard on the radio, John Candy talking or someone talking about being up all night and partying with John Candy the night before. He got pissed yes. and would yes. not let John Candy do his scenes the next day. And he said, well, Uncle Buck would be disheveled or whatever. He sent him home. 
Wow. Yep. Canceled filming for the day. Canceled filming for the day. He was mad. Wow. Yeah, he was an angry guy. Yeah, and John Hughes was. And looking at him, you can see that. See, yeah, he was an angry, <laughs> but he had a vision, man. Oh yeah, he had a vision. So give him that. Um, do we want to talk about National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, or do we want to move on? Real, well, real cool. it's a huge movie, man. It's one of the few films that's a third sequel that is bigger than any of the other films. No. I know people remember Vacation. I love Vacation. I like Vacation. I know it's the Spider Man Christmas Vacation. It's the Spider Man Three of the National Lampoon's Vacation. I don't movies. think that's true. I think that would be a Vegas Vacation as the Spider Man Three of the Vegas. Vacation. <laughs> Why can't Lobster be Chad? That um, his finger look especially long on uh, on kind of sort of, but so does his his face. Go on, Arsenia. What are you going to say about it? He didn't direct it. It was actually going to be directed by, do you guys know this story? No. It's directed by Jeremiah Chichai. I can't say his last name. He would go on to make a wonderful film. What's that one with uh, those British people? They're called the Avengers. What's it called? Oh, the Avengers. Yeah, he directed that. Wow. That's terrible. I know. The best thing about that movie is Ray Fiennes, and it's still not it's not enough to say that movie. So, but you know, I, I, I'm um, not talking I know about Sean Connery. I no, no, no. I know we're talking about uh, John Heath films, but you brought up the Avengers. My defense, and it's not a great one. It, the Avengers isn't a good film, but my defense of the Avengers is it does pretty much follow the '60s series. So, anyway, do you know who's going to direct it originally? No. A little guy named Chris Columbus. Well, do you know why Chris Columbus pulled out? Because he wanted to do. Could not stand working with Chevy Chase. No, not a lot of people could. And they got along because you would think this would piss off John Hughes. Yeah. But they enjoyed each other's company that he offered him Home Alone. He ended up getting Home Alone. Oh, wow. Now, so... honestly, Home Alone was a was the biggest comedy of all time at yeah. the time, right? Yeah, so let me bring up my Home Alone. My, Did my, you want to say something about uh, Actually, I don't have anything about Vacation. I, I was actually still dwelling on Uncle Buck just because you talk about John Candy, and to me, John Candy is Uncle Buck. He is Uncle Buck. Actually, I I don't think that movie works than anybody, anybody else. But they went through a lot of different options. Some of the people allegedly considered, and some... <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was talking about earlier. Uh, with Bill Murray. Yeah. Which proves James isn't paying attention to anything. I know, not a damn thing I'm saying. Chad, are you talking to somebody? I thought you were alone. <laughs> uh, Bill oh Murray. God, don't exist. Bill Murray, Jim Belushi. Yeah. Dudley Moore. Yep. Uh, Joe Pesci. Yep, Joe Pesci. Joe Pesci. Uh, he was busy filming something. He was already filming something. My cousin Jack Nick. Nicholson. Yep. Um, Tim Allen, who was an unknown at the time, uh-huh. they was considered. went with Tim Allen. I remember, I remember uh, reading that. Uh, George Went. Yep. Yeah, Normie. Normie could have been. Never worked. I like no, George uh, Went, but he's not. He's not a leading a, man. No, he's not leading man material. Robin Williams was considered, but he was he had already committed to a dead poet society. Uh, Danny DeVito, but the. the um, the one that actually got me where I was like, oh, I don't think it would have been the same, but I would have liked to see it. Um, John Goodman. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oddly enough, John Goodman would replace a role that John Candy was up for uh, and then died of uh, Fred Flintstone. Yep, in the yeah. Flintstones. So, so I, 
I just think it's, it's because to me, Uncle Buck has to be John Candy. And so I, I hear those names and I'm like, yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, uh, Christmas Vacation was a big hit, but Christmas Vacation, I think, is something that it has never stopped. Yeah. And it's gotten bigger and bigger over time. Yeah. yeah. Um, we'll talk about it more when we do our 89 episode. Yeah. So, Home Alone. Mm-hmm. So, let's go. This is all, again, this is all from the New York Times interview. He had a lot to say about Home Alone. Because at the time, it, this, this interview was shortly after the huge success of that movie. But at 94, it had um, been after the sequel, right? Yeah. So, no, this is from a 1991 interview. Okay. Uh, Home Alone had become a, um, had, was actually a vehicle of validation for him. Again, this shows you how kind of cocky John Hughes was. Nobody will ever say again a Hughes film doesn't open foreign. <laughs> okay. Uh, this was a reference to Home Alone killing the international market by continuing to make hundreds of millions of dollars overseas. Uh, Home Alone was a huge success with both children and adults, which is what Hughes had wanted from the start of, its, of his creation. Hughes had made a promise to himself several years er earlier when he took his son, younger son to see a movie that he would actually go on to write the live-action version of, 101 Dalmatians, um, and found himself in the lobby with dozens of bored fathers. Um, he thought, what, can I, what if I can make a film that will keep both the kids and parents inside the theater? Uh -huh. That's a direct quote from John Hughes. Um, <coughs> This is another direct quote. One of the things I most enjoyed about Home Alone was I made a segment of the marketplace laugh at things they don't usually laugh at. It wasn't a macho jokes. It was this little kid running around dropping paint cans on guys and you could hear grown men laugh. That was really satisfying for me to be able to sit in a mixed audience and they're all laughing at the same thing. Mm -hmm. That was really fun. I was sitting here. I was sitting there saying to myself, I know how to do this. Mm -hmm. Um, do you know about the last uh, 44 pages of Home Alone? Where he wrote it that night. He wrote it in eight hours. Mm -hmm. um, all that physical stuff, it was a roll as fast as I could type. I was inside that movie. Anything I did was right. When you get in there, it's a tremendous feeling because you're not planning it. It's just happening, and it's all subconscious. This is not uh, about Home Alone, but he actually does have another quote that I thought was really interesting about how his, his feelings towards physical <laughs> comedy. If you watch the way a car door closes, you can imagine the things that can go wrong. So he would be, he would be out, uh, his, his approach towards physical comedy is he would actually go out and just observe people into, in their day-to-day -day interactions. Yeah. And he would view how things could go wrong, and that was how he, he approached physical comedy. Hmm. It was a very fat, again, this, this uh, you all, anybody who's a fan of John Hughes should look up this 1991 New York Times I'm article. going to read it. I, I, once again, to me, it just plays everything that I was talking about earlier of middle America. That's where he was. That's where he lived, a family and all the things that are just American. You yeah. know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And that his films represent as well. Maybe it doesn't exist. Maybe it does exist. I don't know. But I remember watching Home Alone in the theater and it was just packed in right. Hazard, Kentucky. I, well, it's it amazingly, was a I did not see it in the theater. I bought it as soon as it came out on it VHS. It beat Ghostbusters. Ghostbusters yeah, was the highest grossing comedy until Home Alone. Well, and I think the thing about it is what I remember, because I saw it on home video for the first time, because yeah. we didn't go to theaters. But um, what I think about Home Alone, what I remember is that became like, oh, it's, you know, two days before school gets out, teachers don't can't assign homework, don't want to assign homework. 
we'll pop in Home Alone and we'll watch it as a class. And I remembered the amount of people that knew every word already. Yeah. I, I, it, it didn't apply to me, but I know so many people that saw it multiple times in theaters. And as soon as it came out on home video, the, the people in Eastern Kentucky, like you said, who, uh, uh, at, at, you know, 11, 12, 13, memorized that film. I, there were three or four in my class, and I was like, well, what? I mean, it's not like it's Wrath of Khan or Blazing Saddles. <laughs> I find it interesting, though. Does anybody talk about Home Alone today that much? I'd say they do. It's not as popular as I think certain things like Christmas Vacation. Man, I don't know. I mean, I, I think play as much on cable as Christmas Vacation. Well, that's true. But, but I think Christmas vacation only plays one time a year, though, at Christmas. At Christmas. Home alone. Yeah, it's still at Christmas. Year. You're right. I, 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 think, don't you're, think, I think you might be right. I don't think – I don't get me wrong. I think people know and people love it. James, your wife watches it at Christmas every year, right? Yes. Yeah, oh, and, and that goes back – again, you talk about your emotional attachment. That was my, – my, my wife stayed with her grandmother quite a bit. Her grandmother had, I think, three or four films on VHS. One of them was Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Right. Uh, and one of them was Home Alone. I don't know what the other two is off the top of my head. But, so, yeah, I mean, for her, it's that childhood moment, <laughs> and, and I don't have that connection to it myself. I, you know, I watched it as a child. It was a funny movie. I I've, I can appreciate how well it's made. It's actually made very well, and Macaulay Culkin, once again, holds that movie together. Yeah. Uh, there's some great performances in it. I'm actually not poo-pooing on it. It is, it is, a, it is a wonderful family film. Right, right. For all ages, exactly what he was saying. It's a wonderful family film. I just could not care less. But I, I think it's also one of those things where it's tons of happy accidents brought that together. You mentioned the Chris Columbus thing. It's scored by John Williams. John Williams. But that wasn't supposed to happen. Right. Do you know who was supposed to score it? No. Bruce Broughton. Bro Broughton. Broughton. I'm not sure. Do you know what he scored that he's most famous for? What? His most famous score. At least from what I've discovered. National Lampoon Senior Trip. Young Sherlock Holmes. <laughs> okay, well that makes sense. And he was supposed to score Home Alone, but something came up, and they had to go with their second choice of John Williams. I don't know if it was the second choice, but it was a happy accident that John Williams scored Home Alone. It does so have you, a beautiful score. It's shot well, by the way. Well. It looks great. I don't understand how two years later Home Alone Two doesn't look as good as Home Alone. I know. Because it wasn't in the it's house. It's the same thing. Well, it's the same thing with Ghostbusters 2. I love and Ghostbusters. Donald but Ghost, in it. Ghostbusters 2 never looked as good as Ghostbusters. And by the way, I think Ghostbusters 2 is pissed on way too much. But it, it doesn't is. look as good as Ghostbusters. No, it looks too clean. It just isn't the same movie. But do you think also, and this may be true for a lot of, do you think this is, this is true for a lot of John Hughes movies? Maybe another reason they're successful is they do create their own world. Like, I mean, Maybe. Like you said, Breakfast Club, that detention doesn't really make sense. It doesn't. But at the same time, Home Alone created a fake movie within a movie that so many people are still convinced is real. Yeah. Oh, my God. I just saw a movie, Detective Pikachu. Yeah. They're wa they walk into uh, – he walks into – well, anyway, the son. It's all about the son whose his father's missing. He it. walks into his father's mm -hmm. apartment. The movie – that Macaulay Culkin uses in that that was made for that movie is playing on the TV. <laughs> Angels with Filthy Souls. Oh. Souls, thank you. I forgot the title. 
which is, of course, kind of a, a, a hat tip to Those Filthy Angel, Animals, Angels with Dirty Faces, the James right. Cagney film. Um, but it's it's uh, the it was that that, that, <laughs> that film, the film within a film, was shot on a soundstage built in a day uh, on, on, at, at a high school. They built it at the high school. Um, and uh, that the title they came up with on the spot because they had to label the tape. And that's where it came from. Uh, and that's, that's according to the art director, Dan Webster. He, he did an interview with Vanity Fair about it. And um, he said, you know, we had to label the tape. And we labeled it with, you know, Angels with Filthy Souls. And now that's forever burnt into the lexicon because we had to label the tape for the character to push into the player. All right, we're going a little long. Yeah, we probably so, need to move on to Curly Sue. No, let's. I want. No I, I, I want to bring up one more movie. The movie that came out directly after Home Alone, and this is what fir- this is what killed his relationship with Universal forever. Career opportunities. <laughs> that killed it. That killed. John it. Candy's in that too. John Candy's in that too. Uh, a lot of people hate that movie. I actually liked it as a kid. I it liked it as a bomb. kid. It is a he was a huge bomb. I liked it as a kid. I watched it recently. Doesn't it star Parker years. Lewis? No, Frank Whaley. Waylon. Who played Parker Lewis? That uh, other guy. The guy from the stand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh but uh no. It's a TV movie. No, uh, I watched I watched Career Opportunities two or three years ago. It does not hold up. Uh well I, I also had a I had a crush on Jennifer Connelly. Well, yeah, we all did. I still do. Uh, yeah, me too. Yeah. Um, but Hughes hated this movie, calling it cheap and vulgar. He wrote the original screenplay and it was altered. Also, he was listed as a co-producer, which he tried to have removed from the film. Know why he couldn't have? And uh, the movie actually has his name listed in four, three or four different places. You know why they w- why he didn't get it removed? Why? Home Alone. They refused to take his name off the movie because they knew it would add revenue because he was already attached to Home but Alone. But he didn't do you know it, Home Alone was for 20th Century Fox. Fox. Okay. Yeah, but because his name was cemented with Home Alone, they still wanted to take that name and put it on Career Opportunities, and they refused to let him out of it. He didn't want to have anything to do with the movie because they took his script and turned it into what it is today. And after I wonder that, what the difference would be. I would like to know the differences between the hit screenplay and what actually was made. I don't know. I, you know what I mean? Yeah. No, I just, yeah, what would what, be the difference? What would be the difference? Yeah, but you, we know how screenwriting goes. Uh, yeah, we've talked about it many, many times yeah. on the show. Um, so the thing is, that fulfilled his contract with Universal. Um he had a he had a three or four picture deal with Universal and that killed it. He said, "I'm done. I'm done." And he will never. He know. I don't believe he ever worked with Universal again after that. Well, he went on to he went on to write and produce like 101 Dalmatians, Flubber, uh, Flubber. Uh, so he worked with Disney. He also uh, did the remake of Miracle on 34th Street. Yep. So we let's talk about Curly Sue real quick. Let's talk, yeah, because we could honestly we could do a whole other episode on what he produced and wrote. Yeah. So Curly Sue was his last directorial effort. He did not get along with Jim Belushi. I didn't know this till I was getting yeah. that he and Jim Belushi fought all the time. He had a he had a strong connection with the girl who played Curly Sue. Okay. And um, another reason why you should read this New York Times article. Um, there is a whole they uh, they describe in great detail um, a, a scene that he shot with the girl and how he got her to do the scene the way that he wanted it to mm-hmm. and it was just a very sweet passionate interaction that this older man had with this little child yeah he loved kids um so as he was a hard bitter angry man but when it came to kids he was a sweet soul 
So, but Curly Sue, basically it didn't do well. It's not a good movie. It's not a good movie. Jim Belushi is probably, and I don't have anything against Jim Belushi. We've talked about him on the show before. Love the principal. Love (laughs) canine. I do like K-9. I love actually. K-9. I liked, I liked K-9 a lot as a kid. I did, too. It's probably the best dog, buddy cop dog movie that I've – it's better than Turner and Hooch. What's the other Jim Belushi movie from the 80s? Uh, Real Men. It's him and uh, – have you ever seen it? I've never seen it. Oh, it's him and oh, John um, – why can't I think of the guy from It? Uh, Three, Three's Company. John Ritter? John Ritter. Look it up. Oh, Real men. I know what you're talking about. Yeah, it's odd. It's got aliens at the yeah, end yeah, of yeah. it. I love that as a as a kid. That movie, I bet, is a tur- dog turd today. I saw it on like a, on, on TV at like 1 a.m. in the morning. It's a, it was a huge bomb. Anyway. But no, um, there's one thing I want to mention about the fact that, um, how Curly Sue ended his directorial efforts. Yeah, I'm curious because I don't have a reason. I don't have a reason either other than I guess – he, I, there's no explanation as to why he stopped directing films. I cannot, mm. I, I did research cause that was the one thing I, w- I didn't realize that until today or until I started doing research is that he only directed eight films. I really did. I thought I was going to open up IMDb and there was going to be a huge no. catalog of movies that yeah. he directed. He wrote so that's, one movies. That, that's actually what I wanted to say. That's the ones with the pseudonyms. That's the ones with pseudonyms. Cause he wrote all the Beethoven films uh-huh. as Edmund Dantes. That's what I actually wanted to say. So why is it? That's actually what I was going to end the show, but we'll go. I'll go ahead and ask. Before, before, before you, you go. do that, I want I want to mention this little tidbit. If you're okay with that, yeah, go ahead. do it anyway. Do you know what his movie was going to be after Curly Sue? What his next directorial debut was going to be? No. There's not it, and it's thank God this New York Times article exists because I did not. Bartholomew, Bartholomew, and Neff. No, sorry, Bartholomew versus Neff. And this, yeah, I read a little bit about it. It's one of the famous unproduced ones. Yeah, it, it is a star, uh, it is a feuding neighbor movie that was to star John Candy and Sylvester Stallone. Stallone. Did you know about this one, James? No, I want to see it. Yeah, I do too. Yeah. Get uh, John Candy back and let's make this picture happen. Yeah, uh, that would have been an amazing picture to see a few a, a, a neighbor's feuding that was Sylvester Stallone and John Candy. I would have loved to see this movie get made never happened because i believe i believe from what i could tell it was of curly sue well i was gonna say and that's that that was gonna be my question is uh as as we as you said there's only eight films he's directed and i think about that and usually if you think about famous directors they may produce some why is john hughes known more as a director than he is a writer I don't know. I don't know that he is, but probably because off the top of my head, three of, actually, you probably need to throw Pretty in Pink in there, don't you think? Yeah. Four of his movies had huge cultural impact, beginning with Pretty in Pink, then The Breakfast Club, and then Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and I'm going to stick with Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, and I'll tell you why, because it still plays on Thanksgiving on AMC 52 times, right. or ever how many times, right? Right. Well, and it's it's and it still plays. It still holds up. You don't see – and Uncle Buck, by the way. I want to throw Uncle Buck in there, too. People still talk about Uncle Buck still plays somewhat. I don't know as much as the other. Well, definitely Ferris Bueller, definitely Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, and definitely The Breakfast Club. Yeah. I, was with, I, I mean, most of us would kill to have one of those. Yeah, well, but – and that's just it. I, I, I was just curious about it. And maybe it's because – Directors tend to be known more than writers. 
and so maybe he said, I don't know. But I just saying it's interesting and that the thing, there was a brand with him. And the other thing too is the movies that he wrote after his after Curly Sue, they some were hits like Beethoven, Flubber, 101 Dalmatians. The personal favorite, Dennis the Menace. I love Dennis the Menace. <laughs> he wrote he wrote that movie. It's Christopher Lloyd's sixth best best, fake best picture. <laughs> but then you know it's that's directed by pretty good, pretty good, yes. pretty good. But you know then it, it's all it, it kind of started to fizzle because just visiting all the Beethoven films made in Manhattan. Just real visiting big. is a remake of a French film that was famous. It's yes. Like oh, okay. Um, but it was a bomb. Yeah, and then you got uh, Drillbit Taylor, which was his last movie before he he passed away. <laughs> it didn't come out though before he passed away, did it? It came out in two thousand eight. Did it really? Yeah. So he he and he passed away the next year. Hmm. And a lot of people wrote on that. You know, the, okay. So I want to ask you all a question. Go for it. What's your favorite non-directed that he wrote movie? I can tell. I, I don't. I don't, yeah, I don't have to skip a beat. Dutch. Damn it! And that was gonna. I would. That was gonna end. Which was also Dutch. a bomb. It was a bomb, but man, I love Dutch. It's either The Great Outdoors or Dutch for me. I think Dutch is probably a better film, but The Great Outdoors is still pretty fun. They, so, Great Outdoors for the Great Outdoors for the gags. Yeah, the gags. But still hold Dutch up. for the story. And and because that movie is a. I don't think that Dutch. I don't think Dutch got the respect that it deserved. No, it it came and went. And it no came and went. It. Nobody saw it. If you haven't seen it, go see Dutch. Dutch. Go rent it. Well, you can't rent it. Find some streaming service and, and get it. Dutch is an amazing film. Uh, Ed O'Neill, probably one of Ed O'Neill's best performances behind, uh, uh, what was it, that that crime, yeah. cr criminal opportunity? What was that movie? Shit. Oh, um, no, it's career, uh, not career opportunities. It's uh, criminal. Oh, shit. No one ever remembers that one either. Yeah, no. So uh, I anyway, think that was probably harder to find. I think you can find Dutch. Dutch, yeah, and they share. They show it around the holidays quite a bit. They do show. Dutch still shows up. The other one is oh, but man, Dutch. Dutch is right up there. Dutch is right up there with in on terms of an emotional pool of plane trains and automobiles. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not it's not as great as plane trains and automobiles, but it has the same kind of structure, and it is a road trip movie. Yeah, I definitely check out Dutch. Go ahead and find Dutch if yeah, you've no, never seen it. But you don't even I don't even skip a beat. Any the non-direct the, the just written Dutch. I prefer Pretty in Pink to Sixteen Candles. I don't like either one of those movies. I like Pretty in Pink. Pretty in Pink has a, a really good performance from the late uh great uh, he's from Kentucky. Harry Dean Stanton. Harry Dean Stanton as her dad. As her out of work father. Boom, I'm nailing it tonight, man. You are nailing it. I'm sorry. It's about midnight and I'm tired. So, James, what else you got? Are we ready to wrap up? I got a tinkle. I'm holding it in, brothers. Well, if you like all that Sprite. One thing, and we mentioned this earlier with the Nick Cage trivia, but one thing that does shock me is as successful. Golden are coming at you. Wouldn't that be great if I just unzipped this and let's see? No, no. As successful as no, I don't want a shower. I don't even want a golden shower. As successful as his films were. Hold on, James. Do your best Kelly Brock impersonation. Kelly Lubrock. Lubrock. Sorry, don't come after me, Steven Seagal. As successful as his films were, do you think that 
I, I find it interesting that he always had budget issues, though, because even the the Ferrari and Ferris Bueller is not a real couldn't Ferrari. Afford one. Couldn't afford one. Couldn't afford to rent one. Yeah, the, the, he couldn't get one. Home Alone was going to be in a different studio, and they balked at four hundred thousand or something. It's, it wasn't even a million dollars; it's like a few hundred thousand, and he walked it over to Twentieth Century Fox. Wow! So I, I, I think the uh, <laughs> I, I just I, I find that fascinating because I think we we think of all these movies, we've named them, we've talked about things he worked on, and they're all huge. They're, they were all so he had enough success that you would think he could get what he wanted. But he has a he has a fiberglass Ferrari in Ferris Bueller yep. because he can't get a real one. And I find that fascinating. I think that's a great way to kind of sum up his experience with Hollywood. And yeah, maybe well, that, he it, didn't really give Baby Stay Out its fair day. Man, it actually you know it's not I, good yet. Really? No. I watched it with the kids. I actually enjoyed it. Really? Yeah, and they they liked. I didn't it like well. it as a kid. Well, in the nineties, I didn't like. Well, it. I watched it with I had I didn't watch it really till till an adult with my two daughters, and they really liked it, and it it sucked me in too. Um, but back on the James, uh, John Hughes is actually uh, up and well, not anymore. But then he was considered the most successful independent filmmaker. Really? Yeah, he didn't really make independent films. films he worked for got, studios. Yeah, the I didn't time. understand that, but I, I guess that was how he got the money for his films. I didn't understand that quote, and I wish I could have done more research on that, but I didn't. But they I don't can, think that's quite right. Now, was, even if he did have them financed, they were all through stu- major stu- studios. studios. Yeah, I don't. I didn't get it either. But that's, the biggest major studio. That was Fox, that was in, that, there was a line that said he, and I was hoping maybe you all can make sense of that. But he well, was the most prolific independent filmmaker. And this is the one thing that I rolled to make movies that were just his. Yeah. and they might be. I don't know. I don't know what that. But just like. imagine. If some and if his wife ever releases it, if it still exists, because the man was constantly coming up with movies. We don't know how many movies he has out there that were never made. Now we have a list of things that didn't happen that were out, but we have no idea of what's in a drawer. Because yeah, because again, the man was constantly writing scripts, and some of those never saw the light of day. Right. I, this is one thing that I, I thought was interesting. Same because time, I don't think we could get a John Hughes movie without John Hughes. Right. Uh, This is one of the things though, speaking of John Hughes, the movies, usually when I'm doing research for one of these things that we do, um, I can find, you know, like, Oh, this person, you know, and some of the people we've interviewed before for bonehead, we've been, I've been able to find, Oh, this is movies. They like, I tried to actually do searches about, John Hughes' favorite films and what movies John Hughes admires and, and what he based, you know, what inspired him. I couldn't find anything. That's the other question I had. It's a showing bit. that James is not listening to anything that is said in this episode. Frank Capra. No, no, I know that. But, <laughs> but no, it's a bitch. James is right. Even though what he movie? went into a blackout in 94, which makes – he went, still went on to do yeah. Disney 101 Dalmatians. He was writing Flubber. He was writing his mo- and movies obviously from his – successful through yeah, Hollywood. From his, from his farm in northern Illinois, he was still producing content like nuts. But still, after all is said and done, he just didn't do a ton of interviews. No. He didn't do, I don't and it's what made, I, interviews before it. Which is which why I found me, this New York Times interview. Which makes me want to go out and find the doc, that documentary even more because I've never seen it. Right. Yeah. Because I, I, I did hear you say Frank Capper, but Frank Capper made a lot of movies. Which one? Was it just It's a Wonderful Life or was it You Can't Take It With You? Was it Angry Law? The Wild Bunch. That's, that's 
that's nah. that's some. <laughs> I don't know why we. I don't know why we let you live. Is <laughs> <laughs> even a member of the sucky bunch? <laughs> Only two people. Well, no, not even. We only have two people listening to this, so they're not going to. Actually, funny. we're doing all right with the listeners. It's the viewers, not so much. I and and credit to uh, Laurel Hightower. She gave us a shout out today, and we get some more followers on Twitter. Thank okay. you, Laurel. Yeah, Laurel, we need to have her back on the show. So, are you guys done? Are we done? Are we? She good? could replace James. Yeah, she could probably replace. Me. I mean, somebody should replace me. I mean, and it's, I'm not even going to do that line from Star Trek Six where he's like, "Oh." I, you know, you can replace me. I could never replace you. I could only succeed. No, you all can replace me. Well, we're all replaceable. So with that, anyway, thank Except you, all John Hughes. John, John Hughes. Hughes. I, I, I know Kevin Smith talks about how much he. Well, Mall Rats is based on John Hughes. It so. is. Well, more than Mall Rats, but yes, yes. Well, I know, but specifically Mall Rats is. He influenced all of us. Yeah. And if you're of a certain age like us, it's hard, even if you don't care for the teen movies, because you're right. There's planes, trains, and automobiles, right? There's Dutch. There's Dutch. There's other films that he did that people love. Actually, I've never seen the 101 Dalmatians movie here. I'm not a fan. Christy But I don't like 101 Dalmatians, the animated movie, so it wasn't. Yeah. That was that was the first movie my dad got to see in theaters. Just FYI. So the original. Not, not, not the not the John Hughes one. It sounded like my dad was in his forties. Well, I'm gonna go out. I'm gonna eventually find the documentary, Don't You Forget About Me. I'm and read, learn, the, read the New York Times article. Read the New it's York free Times. online. All you gotta do is sign up for an account and New York Times will let you read it for free. All right. Any other questions, guys? Thanks so much. You want to say something, James? No, I was going to say, I, I don't have all the attachment that you all have with it. Like I said, teen movies never did much for me. But I, I do think that, like you all have said, he created a vision that has been imitated, parodied. You can't watch it's Family Guy without it. it. Yeah, I'm sorry, James. It doesn't hold the, the uh, cultural significance of uh, Chud 2. Bud the Chud. <laughs> I, I'm not a big fan of that. Even ever seen Judge? <laughs> I, I have seen. I have seen Judge too. When I was a kid, I wasn't allowed to watch such things. If it wasn't, if it wasn't approved by, uh, what's Carrie's mother's name? I was going to say the Catholic yeah. League, but you can keep going. Yeah, if it wasn't approved by them, it wasn't allowed to screen in my I house. Wasn't a, if it wasn't approved by the Pure Prairie League, Joe Lewis was never allowed to. <laughs> Oh, there is an obscure joke. Joe, up in those holes in the hey, ground. What you going to do? No. Have you? Can I? Can I share with you the good word today? Anyway, the good word is thank you so much for tuning in to Bonehead. Share us, like us, subscribe to us. We hope you've enjoyed our John Hughes episode. Oddly enough, really quick, this was not supposed to be our next episode, but we all, this happens, right? It's the same thing with movies. I hear filmmakers go, well, you know, I had this one planned, but it's never the one you have planned. It's what you do next. This just happens. Right. We have all these over here, and some of them have been here for what, two years? Uh, We've been been saying we're going to do a vampires movie since, uh, like, episode it, four of this well, show well, i'm sure it was an idea before we even started doing and of course vampires. i think all three of us hate vampires i like vampires. I, and we haven't done dracula yet well yeah we did frankenstein we didn't do dracula yeah we haven't dracula's done, we haven't done creature of the black lagoon <laughs>
No. Which is significantly cooler than all the universal monsters. Well, it's, that, that is a universal monster, isn't it? What? Hmm? Isn't Creature from the Black Lagoon a universal monster? A universal yeah, that's monster. what I just said. Again, not paying attention. You need. No, to I, I believe. Go back and uh, listen, listeners. Go back. Doesn't he say it's significantly cooler than all the universal monsters? That's what I heard. Yeah, he did say it that way. But anyway, thank you so much for tuning in. You guys have a good night. And as Joe said, thank you all very much. Thank you. It is eleven forty-nine. I'm going to have some Sanka. Not here. It's ten forty-four. Nobody cares. Push pause, Chad.